Hey, it's me, your favorite neighborhood lesbian, just dropping by to let you know that today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by you, the patrons on Patreon, and anybody else supporting this podcast. If you're not a patron, you can become one for as little as $3 a month and get early access to episodes and vlogs that I drop. You can also be involved in exclusive live streams for patrons only and many other giveaways that I'm in the process of planning on doing. So if you want to become a patron, click the link in the description below and uh, help support this podcast and the show. And to all the current patrons, thank you so much for the support. I love you all very much. I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, we are recording. All right. So I have Susan, how do you pronounce it? Isaza? It's Susan Isaza. Yeah, it's like a long name. Okay, got it. And you are the founder of the Sexual Assault Advocacy Network. Mm -hmm. Um, And now that started as a Facebook group. It did. It did. I'll tell you a little little story about it. So I've been doing sexual assault prevention advocacy for about six years now. I'm a father, daughter, incest survivor, and really wanted to speak out and share my story. And after doing that for six years, you know, I was doing so many talks and interviews and conversations like this, and I realized I needed a community, right? I needed a, a group of people that I could go to that are doing the same things as I am, share information, support each other, that sort of thing, because I'm not affiliated with an organization. So I didn't really know how to go about it. So I started a Facebook group hoping for about 25 or 50 people. And within a couple of months, a thousand people had asked to join the group. And I realized, wow, this is like a lot bigger than me just wanting somebody to chat with on Facebook. So I got some people together from the group. We, we talked about forming an organization. And then here we are months later, we have a website and we have programs and it's really exciting. It's been a fast year. You guys, well, it started, um, you started it a year ago, right? Yes. In May of 2019. So yeah, we're almost a year and a half now. And you guys have now over 1500 members, right? We do. We have 1,500 members, and it's a closed group, so people have to be invited in. Um, It's only for advocates. It's for someone like you or anyone who's speaking out on the issue of bullying, sexual assault, domestic violence, anything anything like that. So, yeah, it's growing by the day. And I was on the website before, and you you have, like, an army of people now that are behind you that are educators and speakers and mentors and stuff like that. How, how did that even happen? You just like, did you just create the group and then people came to you and they were like, hey, we want to get involved? Yeah. So like I told you, when I started the Facebook group, I never envisioned it would be anything more than that. But then as we were going on, people were asking for different types of things. They wanted to do webinars. They wanted to form special, you know, advocacy groups. They wanted to work on policy stuff. And, you know, you can't do that through a Facebook group. So I had gotten to know a lot of people through the group just through chatting and and the group conversation, but we had developed personal relationships. So I just reached out to people that I knew. There were about a dozen of them and talked at old school, you know, telephone. And and I told them what I wanted to do, that I wanted to broaden the group and I wanted to do more. And did they want to help? 
And every single person, Tori, that I talked to said enthusiastically, yes. <laughs> and even though there was one thing that everybody had to agree with, and that was that everything is volunteer. So we're an entirely volunteer organization. So anyone on our, our leadership team, anybody on our advisory um, council uh, committee, any of those people had to come in with whatever skill sets they had, whatever resources they had. And, and do it in the spirit of, of as a volunteer. Um, and so we started having meetings and talking about like what's possible here. First of all, what do advocates need? What do people right. like me? What are we missing? Um, and how can we meet that need? So uh, we have, for instance, a couple of examples. We have an awesome woman named Vanessa Dungeiton who does um, mentoring um, for advocates and, and survivors of domestic violence. And she offered some free sessions to SAN members. So we have that available. Um, we have these two awesome, uh, really strong advocates that have created groups for um, people speaking out um, on behalf of Latinx survivors and, and other people of color. So we have so many programs and initiatives going on that everyone is spearheading on their own or with a team of other volunteers. So That's amazing. it's really incredible because I've worked in nonprofits for a while and those models often don't work. Um, but for some reason this is, and I think one of the reasons is because we feel such a connection with each other. We're yeah. all survivors, you know, so we have that in common, but we're also moving to thriving, which is, being more public, talking about what we've been through, telling our stories, reaching out and offering help to other survivors. So having a community like that is so important for any and, and that's that's it. That's the beauty of having the sense of community is people feel safe to speak up and tell their story. You know, like I've noticed even with this podcast, there's like a community of people who that's even how we're here right now is, you know, I was on a live stream just talking about certain things and people were like, please do an episode on sexual assault. And um, I had no idea what the heck I was getting myself into. But um, connecting with you, even that, the first conversation that we had taught me so much, just like that one conversation, you know, that it's just crazy how one conversation can teach somebody. But mm -hmm. that that sense of community is what gives people like the strength in numbers, I guess, if that makes sense. Yes, it definitely does. It definitely does. And I think sharing our stories, you know, everybody's got a story, whether it's of abuse or I mean, anything, we've all been through things in our life, right. but oftentimes we don't share that with other people. And I think, especially as you get older, you share less, you are tempted to share less and less because now you have a career and now you have a family and you have kids. And so those secrets and those, those memories and whatever has happened to you stays inside. And so part of what I've learned to do in my own journey as an incest survivor is to be more public, more forthcoming with what I've been through. And by sharing my story with people, it's been unbelievable, the response. People who are not survivors, very, very supportive. Mm -hmm. Helps to educate them, their awareness is raised. Uh, really good experience there. But even just connecting with other survivors, they come out and say, you know, I had somebody when I was doing a training, she came up to me afterwards, tears running down her face. She said, I'm a survivor. I was raped in college and I have never told anybody about it. You are the first person I'm telling about. And the only reason why I'm telling you 
is because I know something similar has happened to you. And that was a real light bulb moment for me that sharing a little piece of ourselves can help other people to heal, not just for us, but for others. Yeah, absolutely. Did, is that why um, you, you started the, the Sexual Assault Advocacy ne- Network? Because yeah. you just wanted to give power to other people who have gone through the same things? I did. I did. You know, I was starting to realize after Me Too hit in 2017. So it's been actually this month, it's been three years. It's, wow, it's been a roller coaster of years. <laughs> um, that there were so many of me out there. You know, prior to Me Too, we really didn't have a microphone. We really didn't have a platform for telling survivor stories. People honestly were just not that interested. The media, not that interested in it. But then once more people, the silence breakers, the famous people that came out and started talking about sexual harassment and abuse, once they did that, now the media and the general public is more interested in hearing these stories. So many of me started to become developed people who were just on their own. I mean, on my own, I I just go out and I develop contacts at colleges and military bases and pretty much anybody who wants to hear about sexual assault, I come in. But I've done that all myself or with the help of, you know, a few other people. And so there's so many of me around. I realized that we, we need support. If we don't get that support, it's harder to keep doing this, you know, and you being a podcaster, you know, you first start something, it's a lot heart and your soul and everything into it. It's easy to burn out. I mean, it's really easy to burn. I, I, I don't have to tell you this, you being a YouTuber. Um, it's easy, it's easy to say, or to be tempted to say, you know, is this all worth it? And I really feel like survivors who are working in advocacy, we want to keep everybody doing what we're doing because it's important. So how do we do that? We create a community so people can get the support and the help and the validation that they need. So that was really what pushed me to create it. Um, I wanted it for me, but I also wanted to see this movement get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I knew the only way that was going to happen is if the people who were doing what I I was doing stayed involved and inspired others to do the same. Yeah. And I think the education portion of it is so important too, because I feel like there, I mean, you could probably tell me, um, but I feel like there are so many victims out there who don't realize that they're victims. Like they don't, even me, I, I, I like I'm in therapy and I've talked about how women have, um, you know, like kind of vi- like violated me in, in ways when I was out at bars and stuff like that, like touching me in places I don't want to be touched and stuff like that. And I never thought anything of it. And my therapist was like, no, that's like assault. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I feel like a lot of the times there are victims out there who don't realize that they're, they're victims. Do you, do you find that too? or? Yes. And there's a lot of different scenarios. I think that's a, that's a perfect example is we really minimize abuse in America. Like we downplay it. all different types of abuse, not just sexual assault and domestic violence, even for example, bullying in yes. school, people tend to downplay it and say, Oh, it's just what kids do. You know, there's always going to be a bully. Um, and they, you know, they blame the kid who's the victim or the adult who's the the survivor and say, there must've been something that you did to bring this on. And so a lot of times if, you know, when you experience abuse, it's not intuitive in America to say, 
yeah, I went through this and it's not my fault. And that person who did that to me needs to be held accountable. That's not the message we send to survivors in this country. We send the message of you must have done something wrong. Why were you out? Why were you, you know, Tori, why were you at a bar? What were you wearing? Were you wearing provocative clothing? You know what happens when you do that, you know, so we get all these messages. And so it gets confused in our own heads. Um, A lot of other people may not realize that they're survivors because especially when you're a child, if you go through trauma, up to one third of child sexual abuse survivors has little to no memory of the event whatsoever. That's scary. Uh, We hear of a lot of cases of people who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s, all of a sudden waking up one day and having all of these memories come forward that they, and, and this understanding and this enlightenment that they were abused as kids by a parent or a sibling or a priest or whomever. And then they never remembered until that morning when they woke up and, and had these, these memories come back. So many of us are not really even cognizant of the abuse that we've suffered because your brain kicks in and it has ways of protecting us from things that are really traumatic and tragic. Um, so there's, there's a lot of reasons why people either don't re- realize they've been abused and certainly why they don't come forward and talk about it. Right. I think, oh man, there's so much I want to say, but I think when the, when the Me Too movement happened or started, I was actually disheartened by how many, how much pushback there was to that movement. Um, and I'd love to get your opinion on this there's that whole debate of like, should we believe the person coming forward right off the bat? Like, what's your opinion on that? Do you, do you believe that we should just take the person at their word if they said that they were abused? Mm -hmm. I believe that too. (laughs) Yes. I would, I would pose a scenario to you, right? If you got a phone call in the middle of the night from a friend of yours who said, Oh my God, somebody's breaking into my house. What do I do? What what would you tell that person to do? You'd be like, call nine one one. Are you safe? You know, get out of the house. You know, get your pets, your kids, or whatever. You'd start giving instructions on how to keep that person safe and how to get the authorities involved. Right. Right. That is what we do for people when a crime is happening to them. Right. Sexual assault is different we tend not to help people and we tend not to believe people when they come out and they tell their story. Um, Because we live in, I don't know if you've heard this term rape culture. We live in a rape culture where there's so many myths around why sexual assault happens. People don't want to recognize the reasons that underlie it. And they don't want to recognize just how prevalent it is. I mean, one in four girls, one in six boys will be abused by the time they're 18. So even by the time you head to college, you look around in your college classroom, you know, one out of every four females, one out of every six males has already been um, assaulted. So you're talking about huge numbers. Yeah. Yeah. And yet because of rape culture, we don't, we don't acknowledge the scope of the problem. Um, And so I think, you know, what, what I always tell people is, Mm -hmm. So few people falsely report sexual assault. I mean, the false reporting rate for sexual assault is like 2 to 8%, um, which is the same false reporting rate, by the way, for all other major felonies. So people are not actually reporting sexual assault falsely more frequently than people who are, you know, um, whose home has been burglarized, right? Right, right. Um, 
So when people come forward, the message we always want to send is, yes, awful what has happened to you. Yes, um, you did not deserve it. I believe you. I'm here to support you. You didn't do anything wrong. This person should be held accountable. Like these are all the messages we want to be sending to survivors because research has shown that the more validation you get when you first disclose your abuse experiences, the quicker you heal. So if you come forward and the first person you tell starts criticizing you and doubting you, that makes it that much harder to heal. In fact, many people will step back and say, I'm never telling anybody again. Ever again. And yes, not, not so to good. mention, the, I feel like the mental implications of that, like how that could cause depression and anxiety and um, like... I could say from experience, any fem- for me, it's only been females who have stepped forward and like told me about their stories. Um, there are plenty of men out there, guys out there who are sexually assaulted. But when a friend has come to me and told me their story, my first thought is not to be like, you're lying. <laughs> like, and I don't understand how that mentality even comes to be. I guess what you said before, it's, it's this rape culture mentality, in, in this, mm-hmm. especially in this country. Um, and now you said you were an incest survivor. Can you um, elaborate a little bit on what that means for people who don't necessarily know? Because I know I had no idea what that meant. Sure, sure. So the you know the Me Too movement was awesome. It gave a platform for a lot of people to tell their stories. But incest stories were almost completely left out of the Me Too movement. Um, so we've made a lot of progress, but there's still survivors whose stories are not being represented and not being told. Incest survivors are one of those groups. Um, and incest is abuse by a family member, right? It's, it's very simple. Now, because we don't talk about incest, it's like such a hidden form of sexual abuse, incest. People talk about it so infrequently that there is this perception in our culture that there are a lot of incest relationships that are consensual, mm-hmm. right? Because we, the, there are there is a small group of people who push incest, who say that it's fine, that we should acknowledge it, and we should, um, you know, we shouldn't criminalize it. And they're very vocal. Mm-hmm. And because incest survivors are not very vocal, it gives the impression that incest isn't really a problem. Right. That it's, you know, there are cases, you know, of children who are really hurt, but in general, there are people who enter into these incestuous relationships and it's fine. So this is the message that we're getting. My work as an incest survivor and as an advocate is to bust that myth that incest is damaging. Incest is abuse. Incest is not consensual, right? No. Um, and even if you look at cases of adults, who have gone on to marry a family member, oftentimes if you dial that back and you see what has happened in the past, very often one of those people has been groomed. Yes. Yes. They've been groomed. Yeah. I'm reading your mind. (laughs) They, they have been groomed to um, associate and, and, and love the offender to um, believe that what is happening is fine and is normal and that it's actually helpful for them. So, so kids are groomed in this way. Um, So as they grow up, they don't challenge the notion of being sexually abused by an older person. They, they don't. And, and they're often told, don't tell anybody about it. 
fact, that's, that's the message incest survivors almost always get, which is don't tell anybody. Nobody will believe you. Um, if you tell anybody something bad's going to happen to you or your dog or your parent or whatever, there's a lot of threats made. So they scare them into like submission, I guess. Yes. Yes. And so, you know, incest survivors, like I, I didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anybody until I was 19. And I heard that my father had abused another person, another young person. And like the light bulb went off in my head. And I said to myself, I couldn't do anything to help me. Right. But now I'm an adult and I'm out of that situation. I can do something to help someone else and to make sure this guy doesn't do this to anybody else. And so I reported him um, and he was eventually convicted on four counts and he's a, a registered sex offender. But that's a really rare circumstance. I know, I know it's a really rare circumstance though, because many um, incest survivors, even as they become adults are still wrapped up in this really dysfunctional family environment where they can't pull away. There's oftentimes, you know, emotional abuse that continues. There's financial entrapment that happens. And even people my age who were abused as kids are sometimes still associating with family, with this dysfunctional family. So it's really hard to get out of. That's sad. That's very sad. And a lot of the times I remember you saying that like, um, even when, when family members come out, like the victim is, is actually treated like the, the, the predator, I guess, or, or like the bad guy that mm-hmm. happens a lot. You've said, um, and, and for anybody who doesn't know, can you explain, cause <laughs> you taught me last time when we spoke, what grooming is, what is grooming? So grooming is a technique that an offender will use to try to create a relationship with a child. In this case, let's just call it a child, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's, it's hard to sexually assault a child just by using force and just by using threats. It's actually easier for an offender to develop a relationship with a kid so that the kid begins to like them. Oftentimes the offender will give them gifts will say special things about them. You know, I care about you. I'm here for you. Nobody else in your family or whomever seems to love you, but I will always be there for you. Um, the, you know, they often help kids out if kids are in trouble. You know, a lot of kids are in really bad family circumstances or they're in, say, you know, foster homes or in and out of group homes. And kids have, some kids have a lot of troubles and a lot of worries and they become very vulnerable to adults who know how to zone in on kids that are looking for somebody to help them or looking for somebody to love them. And so through this grooming process, the offender really sort of gathers the child into their sphere. Um, and, and the kid doesn't even realize what's happening um, until one day they wake up and now all of a sudden this offender is trying to touch them you know, very slowly over a series of weeks or months or years, offenders will push the boundaries more and more to see what they can get away with, with a child. And then eventually it can progress just to all out rape or other, other sexual assault or even physical violence. Um, It can really progress. And many people around this child are not always aware that this is happening. 
mm. right? They, look, they sometimes look at adults and say, oh, they're so, they're so nice. They're so, you know, helpful to kids, always offering rides to kids, helping them out with their, buying them soccer balls and baseball mitts. Like these, these guys are, these are great guys. Um, but oftentimes they're using those strategies to develop relationships with kids in which they can take advantage of them. And I, I use the word he a lot, but there are many female perpetrators out there. It's not just men who do this. Um, it's also, it's also uh, women as well, but those stories we don't hear a lot. We don't No, We definitely don't. Um, do you find that it's more men than women or, or I mean, I, I like as, as predators, as, as, um, the, the ones that are committing the, the act, do you find that it's more men than women or is it kind of equal across the board? Well, the research, you know, research is a problem in this field because we know a lot about some forms of sexual assault and very little about others. So for example, incest, there's so little research about incest. We don't know the prevalence. We don't know much about, um, you know, who's affected and who the offenders are. Um, but we do know that the majority of sexual assault, the, the offenders are male. Um, we don't know about the rates of, of females very much. There are, there have been studies, but they're very different. They come out with very different conclusions. You know, I've read a story that um, I read about some research saying that 75% of um, women um, are, are perpetrators that seven, and so if you have a, if you have, let me back out of this for a second. If you have a hundred sexual assaults yeah. that, um, 25% of those are, are committed by women and 75% are committed by men. Okay. Um, but the studies are not very conclusive in terms of, they're not really replicated. So we don't know, but I can tell you, I have talked to so many, um, survivors who have been molested by a mom, by a sister, by, you know, an aunt, a female teacher, um, a babysitter. So there's just all different scenarios out there, but men, it's challenging for men to come forward. It's challenging for boys to come forward because there's all these stereotypes about like what it means to be a man, right? You know, you're supposed to be aggressive. You're supposed to be the initiator. Yeah. Um, and these stories don't match that those assumptions. Yeah, it's it's kind of like the like the toxic masculinity and like um I feel like again society just puts these this pressure on males uh that if they speak up about b- abuse they're looked at as like almost like this is not a technical term but like sissy men, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um it's very sad, very sad. And and going back to what you were saying before, like about grooming, um, they do have websites, like just so whoever's watching knows they have, you, you gave me a reference to a website to give you kind of like clues as to how to tell the difference between just a nice person who's nice to your kids or somebody who's um, um, trying to groom your child. Um, do, you, do you have that website offhand or no? Yes. So the organization is called Stop It Now. Um, So it's stopitnow.org. Okay. And they're awesome. They're doing some really groundbreaking work. Thank you. They're starting to focus more and more of their attention on the perpetrators. Oh, that's amazing. Who who are their perpetrators? How can we get them to stop offending? How can we provide help to people who are at risk of hurting somebody, but haven't yet? And that's work that has not really been the focus of attention 
um, up until this point, you know, because we've been so consumed with helping survivors, which we should be. But there is a whole group of people who are offending or at risk of offending. And so we have to deal with that. We have to understand more about why people are doing this and how to get them to stop doing it. And Stop It Now has these great fact sheets. You know, I have to tell you, I explored their site a couple of years ago and I came across this the sheet that I was telling you about. It's basically warning signs that an adult is at risk of abusing a child. I thought, oh, this will be great. Let me look at this. Let me see my, you know, see if I can see my father in this list, right? Can I see him reflected? There were like maybe 15 signs and he had like 12 or 13 of the 15 signs that he was abusing a child. And I, I had to stop and say, wait a minute. These signs were very apparent to other people in my family, other people out there in the community, at school. Like, why did nobody pick up on this? Right. And if they did, why didn't they do anything? Um, and so really the first step is educating people at what those warning signs what to look are. For. And then what to do if you see them. What do you, you do? That is like, that is what people are afraid of. So I, I think, I really do think thinking about the issue of child abuse, many adults are just clueless about how to deal with it. And they're very afraid. <laughs> and I have to tell you, like, I have a 13 year old son mm-hmm. and even just talking with him about, you know, concepts of consent and abuse, it's awkward. It is awkward. It's not a thing that most people are comfortable talking about. Um, so, you know, I, I actually had a friend just come to me a couple of weeks ago saying she thought that a family member was being abused by another family member. And she told me the signs and say, yeah, yeah, it sounds like that's what's happening. Um, and she asked me that question, what do I do? And what I always tell people is just ask. That is something that most of us are very afraid to do. You can take a child aside you can ask them how things are going at home. You can, you know, ask them if you have that close personal relationship with them. If anything, anybody has done something to make them feel uncomfortable lately, or has anybody touched you in a place that made you feel really uncomfortable or a place that's under a bathing suit, or has anyone given you a bath lately that doesn't usually give you a bath? I mean, you can ask like these types of questions depending on the situation and you, you'll probably get some information that will give you a sense as to whether or not something is happening. I mean, you don't have to come out and say, are you being, you know, sexually assaulted? Because right. to a child, they may not identify what's happening as sexual abuse. Right. They, they don't know. Identify it as like, oh, this person, I feel uncomfortable around this person. Um, and she gives me all these presents, spends all this time with me, but... I'm really uncomfortable with like what's going on. They don't often identify that as grooming or as sexual abuse. So sometimes it's up to us to ask kind of the probing questions. To be like the detectives and sift through. And I feel as though children, um, especially children, will be truthful. Like if I asked you this when we spoke before, Um, Because this is how this whole entire episode came to be was I was saying, if a child, if let's say you're a single parent, and you're dating um, somebody, and your child who's normally a very like bubbly outgoing kid that loves everybody, seems to have some sort of issue with the person that you're dating. And that's like out of their character, take that into consideration. 
Um, would you, would you agree with that? Hmm. Agree with, um, say that again. Like if, like if I'm dating, if I have a child and I'm dating somebody and my child who normally is very outgoing and bubbly just has, has this says that they feel uncomfortable for some reason around somebody or, um, just like despises the person I'm dating. Should we, we be like listening to our children or kind not like accusing anybody, but kind of just taking that into consideration? Like, okay, there's something going on there. Definitely. I mean, we talked before about believing survivors. I yeah. think we also have to believe kids when they tell us how they feel. You right. know, and a lot of us get messages growing up not to cry. Why are you crying? Don't be upset. Don't be mad. You know, don't, oh, don't be sad. Like we're often telling kids how to feel and we have absolutely no control over our own feelings, but yet we raise kids to think that their feelings are wrong or what they think about something can be wrong. And so, yeah, validating what a kid is feeling. Yes. You know, I get it, Johnny, you feel really uncomfortable with my boyfriend or my girlfriend or whatever, you know, why? Tell me more about that. Like, what do they do that makes you uncomfortable? You ask the questions, let them know you believe them, let them know they can come to you with anything. Um, and when we think about, you know, creating a home that's sexually safe, a, a safe home for a kid, one of the most important pieces of that is letting kids know that it is okay to tell us things mm-hmm. that we care and that we will believe them. If yes. every parent did that, for their child. And that was the only prevention thing they ever did in the entire span of raising their kids. We would see a lot more disclosure, but very often kids get the the subliminal message. Don't tell me about this. I don't want to hear about this. And there's a lot of reasons why parents don't want things to come to light. You know, a lot of people are very invested in their relationships with the family. Um, The idea of leaving a partner or cutting off contact with your family to protect your child is really scary for a lot of people to have to envision. Yeah. So sometimes we just see what we want to see, but we want to be sending that message to kids, you know, um, all the time. And there's a lot of things that we can be doing with kids from when they're like zero all the way up to age 18. You're you're reading my mind again. (laughs) I was just about to ask you, like, should we be having those conversations early on or like, what can we do? Hmm. Yeah. So there's a lot of resources out there to help um, parents or adults or really anyone to be thinking about prevention from when a kid is an infant. So as soon as a kid can start talking, right, you can send the message that no means no. That, you know, if you say no to a kid, that they need to listen. And if they say no to someone else, that that other person needs to listen. And just reinforcing the basics of consent, which is if somebody says no, they don't want to give you something or they don't want to do something, you've got to respect that. Right. Um, And that's really the underlying concept of consent. And it's funny because like you see kids at at preschool, like, you know, they start fighting with, you know, other kids for toys and stuff, or can I have some of your chips? You know, I want some of your chips or I want some of your lunch. And another kid will be like, no, no, I'm not sharing my chips. Right. The other kid who is asking knows that like, okay, I don't get any chips, right? Right. Who's the no. But somehow when we get older, all of a sudden in the, when sexual relationships is like, wait a minute, maybe no doesn't mean no. Does no mean yes? Does right. no mean asking? I keep pushing. Like, so somehow something goes wrong 
from so, the <laughs> there's like a disconnect i don't understand it either yeah even yeah. even down to um and i don't know if this would even be seen as sexual assault but um like the cyber stuff you know i i have so many female friends who get unsolicited you know private part pictures that they don't want um would that even be seen as like that's definitely got to be some sort of violation yes yes and in some st- um some states it's a crime oh wow sexting and sending you know videos or you know um images like intimate images of yourself to people in some states depending on ages and depending on the content that can be a crime if the picture is of another person and that person is underage now you're in the area of child pornography so we have to take all of that stuff seriously of course every case is different um but one thing we can tell kids once they get a cell phone or once they get access to some form of virtual communication is that anything that they send to another person, a text, a picture, a video, once you hit the send button, it's gone and it can be used in any way. You can never get it back. And kids don't often think like like that. It's just like, Oh, you know, impulsive. Like I'll just take a picture of myself with my shirt off and send it to this this boy that I like or whatever, this girl that I like. And then, you know, okay, that's fine. Right. You know, think of the implications no. that sometimes if that other person wants to blackmail them, wants to try to get money out of them, wants to try to push them into some form of like sexual activity, they can blackmail them with that image. Yeah. I'm going to put, this, I'm going to put this on your, you know, on, on Facebook or Instagram. I'm going to send this out to the world. If you don't do a, B, and C. And now you're into something that is highly criminal. Right. Now you're trying to force or compel or threaten somebody to engage in sexual activity with you. So it, That's can, scary. it can rapidly transition just from an innocent taking a picture and sending it off to now all of a sudden you're being coerced. And it's scary how often it happens. Um, my best friend recently came across TikTok. It's just a whole new animal. Um, and she came across this TikTok who was exposing this website where pe- it's like a forum where you can type in your location and look up a um, nude picture of somebody by like, I forget how you can search them, maybe by name or just location. And there are people on this forum who are posting pictures, let's say they get a picture of me and they think that I'm attractive from Facebook and I'm fully clothed. And they'll post a picture on this forum and say, have you seen that? Does anybody have news of this female or male? If you do, this is like the thread to send it to. And it's like, it's almost this, um, like trading of people's nudes, like without their consent. And it's a whole website you can go on and search yourself to see if you're on and some people don't even realize that they're my friend found a um mother of her daughter's like her daughter has a friend the mother was on there fully clothed and somebody was looking for nudes of this woman oh my gosh you know that there's so many different opportunities for this stuff to happen um and you know if you just you think of pornography i mean Pornography is such a huge multi-billion dollar industry worldwide. And the United States is by far the biggest purveyor of pornography. Um, if you think of a site like Pornhub, it's so easily accessible to kids. I mean, kids in middle school or even younger, they get 
access. All you need to do is type in, you know, Pornhub.com and all of a sudden all these images and videos start popping up and you have no control over what's coming at you. But a lot of that content, a lot of what's on a a site like Pornhub has been sent in without somebody's consent. Consent, yeah. So if you think about just like incest survivors, many incest survivors are photographed, videotaped. Um, Some of them are trafficked to other family members or out to the public, to the general public. And so these images and videos that have been captured, obviously without the kid's consent, can be shared with a place like Pornhub, right? And Pornhub says that they monitor their content, but with so many images and videos, it's impossible to do that quickly. Right. Um, So you could be going on Pornhub watching a video. You could very well be watching the rape of a child. Um, and, and so people say, Oh, there's nothing wrong with pornography. Like nobody's getting harmed in the making of pornography. A lot of people are being harmed and a lot of them are minors, right? Um, You know, conceptually, I'm not against pornography, but I am against trafficking. I am against people being forced to do things against their will. Right. Or, or if they don't even know they're being taped, even with a significant other, that's, you know, you, you hear about that revenge porn, even, you know, like you, you take this video with your significant other and you think it's just between the two of you and then you break up and somebody's like, well, screw you. I'm going to post it all over the internet. Even if it's up for a day, it could be damaging to somebody. Yeah. And you hear, you hear cases about that. And sometimes, you know, states are really slow to criminalize things in the virtual world. I mean, in some states, people are still trying to ensure that revenge porn can be prosecuted. Um, and, and so states are, you know, they're, they're just slow to passing these laws. So there's a lot of situations with sexual assault where it actually falls through the cracks. I mean, a good example of that is with statute of uh, limitations, where there's actually like a deadline for a lot of sexual crimes beyond which somebody cannot be prosecuted for the crime, particularly um, with crimes against adults. So say you were raped in college. Mm-hmm. Um, your state, depending on where you were, there is probably a statute of limitations that said, if you don't report this within two years, within five years, that even if you know the perpetrator, even if you actually have like DNA evidence that that happened, that person can't be prosecuted past that time. Um, and so in the last several years in America, there's been a huge movement to dismantle these statutes of limitation because they prevent people from being prosecuted. And if you prosecute somebody, you hold them accountable, you put them in jail, you're getting that person off the street so that they can't do it to somebody else. So right. it's not just about holding somebody accountable. It's creating safer communities because that person's no longer out there. Exactly. It's not just about the prevention of it, which obviously is extremely important, but it's also, like you said before, that person who was abused as a child wakes up at 30, 35, 40, and just has these memories just then, they can't now prosecute their, the, the person who did that to them because of the stat, statute of limitations. Yeah, sometimes that kicks in, right? You know, and you bring up a really important point about um, reporting and about talking about these situations and abuse experiences long after. Um, I would send the message to anybody who's listening to this, who is in an incest situation, who is being abused by a sibling or someone else in their family, a step parent, a caregiver, that to tell, to find somebody they trust and tell. 
Um, and very often we are told as survivors, do not tell anybody about what's going on. Nobody's going to believe you anyway, right. or they're just going to think badly about you. They're not going to want to have anything to do with you. You know, we get all these messages as survivors, but I just push the point home, find somebody you trust and tell them, um, because it is really important that we keep kids safe. It's really important that we keep young adults safe who are being molested by somebody. And, you know, sometimes people will tell and they're not believed and they have to tell somebody else. I just send the message, just tell and continue to tell until you get the help that you need to get out of that situation and to keep that person from hurting you or somebody else. Right. Right. Um, So reporting is really, really critical. If we're going to do something about incest in this country, we have to report the perpetrators and it's hard. I mean, I, I reported my father. That was not an easy thing, but because of that, think of all the kids that were saved. Saved. Right. Right. Just yeah. by, by one person telling, um, you can save so many others. Um, yeah. so yeah, a hundred percent. And I thank you so much for, for your time. You literally, again, read my mind. I was going to say, what would be one thing as a closing statement that you would say to somebody, you know, going through this struggling with this type of issue. Um, and I guess also probably to let people out there know that there are resources out there. The Sexual Assault Advocacy Network is wonderful. You're, you're in the process of creating another website um, dedicated to incest. Um, that'll, you said next week, hopefully. Yeah, so it's going to be out mid-October. It's called Incest Aware. Um, incestaware.com or .org. Either way, we'll get you there. And it's the first website that is entirely devoted to incest. There is no other website. It's shocking out there. I know. This topic. Um, and so when I learned that, I decided to create one. Um, but if somebody just wants to reach out and talk to somebody or get help or even just, just have a conversation, they can start with an organization named RAIN, which is R-A-I-N-N.org. Okay. R-A-I-N-N, just think rain, you know, <laughs> um, we'll get there. They have an online chat. They have, you know, phone support. They have all different ways that you can talk to a trained person, a trained counselor. So if something's happened to you, your friend just told you that something happened to them. You have questions. You're not sure if, you know, what consent is about me, like any question that you could possibly have, rain will help you with that. And so, you know, People should use that resource. It's nobody's going to, you know, know that they called. Nobody's going to report back to their family that they called rain. Um, But those resources are out there. Amazing. Amazing. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I would love to have you back uh, because I have so many freaking questions. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no, this has been awesome. And if anybody wants to reach out to me, um, I have my own website, which is Suzanne Issa which is I-S-A-Z-A, SuzanneIsaza.com. And from there, you know, people can email me or contact me. So I'm happy to follow up with anybody. Amazing. But thank you. This, is, this has been awesome. I would love to come back because you know I can talk about this forever. Honestly, me too. I feel like it's so important and uh, you're doing amazing work. And thank you. Thank you for every, 